on the official home of the Canucks. Tiki Pete comes out of the box and puts the puck into the back of the net. Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Bick uh, and the Boss. Craig McEwen here. Bick uh, Mazar off this week. Some much-deserved time away. And, and no doubt, Bick will probably be keeping an eye on everything that's going on at the Olympics. And uh, I see you in the Dunbar Lumber text inbox, 650-650, uh, ripping me in particular and this show for not talking enough about what's going on in, in Tokyo. And, you know, a fantastic performance by Andre de Grasse, uh, winning gold uh, in the 200. Uh, lots of incredible performances at the games. It's, it's just really sad that uh, there's not the fans in the stands to experience it. Uh, it over my time in the media business four olympics and one summer games in athens and just seeing those stadiums and venues uh, packed with fans cheering on the athletes it makes it makes such a difference but the athletes themselves are, are doing their best uh competing really well and and we've seen some very strong results for team canada especially on the the women's side and and one of those uh Teams that have done extremely well, uh, no surprise here, is the Canadian women's national soccer team. Bev Priestman has taken over. And, um, hey, they, they've gone to where no other team has gone before. Uh, getting by the United States, sweet redemption, if you ask me, for what happened in London in 2012, where the uh, Canadians, in my opinion, were robbed and probably better on the day. And, you know, Christine Sinclair just out of this world and you watch Sinclair now uh, she's not the player that she was but still a huge inspiration and leader and it was interesting on uh, Soccer Canada Instagram recently they, they posted some stuff about Sinclair about who she was and there was a story that I did for Sportsnet way back in the day when Sinclair was in high school and was just making her mark on the national team and then she went off to Edmonton to, to play in a great tournament there U19 uh, who can ever forget the the Brazilian coaches on the field? Marta was involved. But yeah, Christine Sinclair has been uh, such a great ambassador for the game in Canada. And and uh, our next guest, James Sharman from the Footy Prime podcast, I'm sure would agree that, you know, she she's the best of our country of all time. And you'd have to say that she is one of the greatest uh, women's soccer players in the history of the game. Oh, what 100%. I mean, listen, I don't think you can find a more humble superstar than, than Christine Sinclair and what she's accomplished. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to say this over and over again, no matter what happens um, in, in the big final, but no matter what happens, win or lose, she should be considered in the same breath as, as the Gretzkys and the Lemieux in, in Canadian sporting parlance, what she's accomplished. Um, she's been in the top three in the world for, for many, many years, at times the best player in world football. Um, what more can you say about a Canadian who, who is uneasy in front of the camera? She's not happy to be in front of the camera, but she does her job, a great ambassador. And what she does even now, you know, like you said there, you know, she isn't what she used to be. Okay, she's still a great player. She's not as dynamic as she once was. But to have her out there leading that team, I, I think says everything about what this team's about. Now, James, I, I want to dive into a little bit of a, uh, 
a soccer talk, if you like, about the game in Canada and the women's program and in the men's side that's improving. But you mentioned the final. And how massive was it for Canada to get by the United States to, to you know, maybe act some revenge of what happened in London, but, but just for their psyche, beating them for the first time in 20 years and now getting to a gold medal game and, and, and win or lose, just, just what does this do again for the game in the country as, as our women's program continues to hit the highest of heights? Yeah, it's a great point because you know, I've been covering this sport for a long time and, and ever since I've covered this sport in the women's side of it, the U.S. has been that, that insurmountable obstacle that you just can't get by, whether it's fair or not fair. And we saw that back in 2012, which you allude to. You just can't get past this team that, you know, an American team that's, generally speaking, every World Cup, every Olympics, you know, one of the top favorites. So to do it uh, and do it at the death like they did, it means absolutely everything. It gives this, this program hope that, yeah, we can do it. Why not us? Why can't we be great enough? And we're seeing that again, win or lose. They've beaten the, the big bad enemy, right? And, and it means so much in sport. It, perhaps, you know, those that don't cover sport don't quite get it. But they are a, a despised team as far as Canada's concerned. And I'm saying that as the whole. I understand that, you know, individually they're all friends. They play in similar teams, you know, in the States and, and in Europe. But listen, Canada-USA is one of the great rivalries in Canadian sports for sure. So to get over that hump and to get to a final, it just shows progress, doesn't it? And as much as we've had some wonderful teams in previous Olympics and World Cups get into to bronze medal games, they haven't got over, overcome that. They haven't beaten the States. So now they've done that. Obviously, you want to win, win the gold medal. It's everything. No one remembers second-place teams. Really, also, we understand. But they've beaten the States. They'll leave this tournament, no matter what happens now, as a, a successful team. And I think that might take the pressure off them somewhat for that final. Yeah, and James, when you look at it um, in tournament football, they've built the right way. They they they're very tight at the back. They don't concede a lot. They 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 look for their opportunities and pounds. And and Sweden will not be an easy out. You know, Canada hasn't had great success against the U.S. And you can say the same when they they face the Swedes. But the way that they've gone about this tournament, the way that they've gained momentum. It does give you a lot of hope, even though you know that final, whenever it's going to be played, either in, in the heat or, or at night as they push for that. But you know that Canada has a really good shot here at, at gold, do they not? Well, they, they, they do. I mean, listen, Sweden's a favorite, right? Sweden's a really good team. They're dynamic. They're, they're superb going forward, and, and they should rightfully enter this match as favorites. But what we've seen from Canada so far at these Olympics is that and that well. You know, they really haven't. You know, there's more to this team than we've seen so far. So maybe, as you see in, in many soccer tournaments, you see teams knowing when to peak at the right time. And that's hope Canada is going to peak at the right time because they can grind out results. And you're right, they can be great at the back, although they have conceded goals in this tournament. You know, leading into the tournament, it was more about, you know, they don't concede goals. They have given up some goals. But they, they find a way to win. And I like those teams because it doesn't matter if they're playing a better team. In a one-off, it doesn't matter because they, they could find a way. So, yeah, absolutely. They've got the star power in, in the Ashley Lawrences and the Khadija Buchanan's, but the supporting staff around them is just superb as well. And, you know, listen, I'm a bit of an old romantic here, uh, but when I, when I look at Christian Sinclair and what she's accomplished and what a great way it would be for her to say farewell to this program, I'm not sure she is. I'm not saying she should, but, man, if they manage to capture gold, what a great 
opportunity for Christine to, to say thank you to, to Canadian soccer and world football and, and, and move aside. Yeah, uh, James Sharman joining us here from the Footy Prime podcast. Uh, when you look at Sinclair and her legacy, you know, I, I would say, obviously, greatest goal scorer, fantastic competitor, fierce, tough, everything. As you said, a reluctant media hero, all that sort of stuff. But in my mind, it's the people that are coming behind. It's the young girls who now believe or want to be her, the young girls who aspire to play the pro game, to play for their national team. And more than anything, and it started, and James, like I remember that Edmonton tournament and doing those early games for Sportsnet, and then Jerry Dobson uh, came in and did the semis in the final. But that team ignited the nation because it was at the perfect time of year nothing was really going on it was a slow time in the calendar of sports and a group of u19 women took a hold of this country and brought it and and that was you know christine sinclair and company at that point so when you look at her legacy and you look at the fact that there's all these great young canadian soccer players now and the, the program stays at the top is that her her lasting legacy do you think in all this Yes, I mean, I mean, first of all, I can't believe Jerry stole those games from me, mate. That's just terrible. But you know, it's Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I, I, I couldn't believe either. Yes. <laughs> um, but you know, yes. I mean, listen. Her legacy is what she's done for for you know women's soccer in this country. Um, you know, Jesse Fleming is a prime example, right? Jesse Fleming um, watched 2012. She was a kid. You know, she was a kid literally, and she got inspired by Christine Sinclair. And now, here we are now, um, what, nine years later, almost ten years later, and Jesse Fleming has taken the ball from Christian Sinclair to score the winning penalty to beat the States. I mean, that's, you know, that's just, you can't write that. That's incredible. And how many girls out there are playing today because of Christian Sinclair and what she did in, in that tournament you mentioned there, and also covering that tournament, you know, um, back at the score, and, and just thinking to myself, this is a special special moment we're watching here not just from what's happening on the field with the bronze medal and all the controversy and the narratives around the usa canada but what it's doing for for canadian soccer as a whole which at the time was in a pretty bad place um and it inspired a nation um men or women you know you're watching that tournament with that women's team and you became a canadian soccer fan i think so many people did so that's her legacy 100 percent. this game is so much better off because of her so much better off because of her and even moving forward we're on the uh, the, the right trajectory on both the men's and and women's side yeah let's dive into the men for a second um john herdman did great work with the the women's program moves to the men and there were some skeptics and people were suggesting you know can he he work his magic with the men's program and listen it's not just john but i have never met a more inspiring individual someone who just has you, you know, just hanging on every word when he speaks and how uh, he can get his message out. But the men's program, you know, you look at the Gold Cup, the results uh, against Mexico probably deserve better than what they got. They seem to be on the uptick as well. Is this a case where soccer in Canada, uh, you, you mentioned the lows of the lows back then, that, that it, it's, it's hitting some peaks here and, and, you know, Alfonso Davies, his calling card in Europe, is it, one of those things where you, you see a turn for the, the country on the men's side as well? Yes. I mean, listen, the men's team, you know, we can stop talking about, is this a golden generation? All right. It is a golden generation. There are kids now making their name across the biggest leagues in Europe, and, and they wear a, a Canadian on their heart, Canadian leaf on their heart. Um, it's a very, very good team now. 
they could well and they should well qualify for the World Cup next year, right? Forget 2026 and when we're going to be hosting games and they'll qualify probably as well. They should qualify for that tournament. They are the third best team in CONCACAF and we've seen that now in the last few few weeks and few months through qualifying. Um, and the Gold Cup, of course. And they have depth now prior to the you know, previous teams. Look at the Gold Cup winning team in 2000. Really good teams and some really good players playing in big leagues. Stolteri, Forrest, you know, uh, Peshka Salido, Brennan. But behind those players, there wasn't much. Now you look at the Gold Cup and you see Alfonso Davies not partaking through injury and Jonathan David not partaking, staying with his club team. And kids are stepping up and they're performing and they're beating good teams. And they arguably should have beaten Mexico, who are and always will be one of the powerhouses in the region. So we're at a very important point in Canadian soccer. I hope that the average Canadian sporting public, forget the, the soccer public, the sporting public stands up and supports this team because imagine, you know, next, what, 2022, December, I know it's odd, World Cup in December, but Canada could be in that tournament. So special times, I, I think, for the sport in this in this country at the moment. Uh, you know, gold medal game and perhaps a, a World Cup berth next year. Man, who would have thought 15, 10 years ago we'll be discussing this? Yeah, what do you think the difference is? Why the turnaround? Uh, mm-hmm. Why the golden generation? What what was it? Is it the advent of the major league soccer clubs and their academies? Is it the the work yeah. that you know Vic Montaliani did when he was here, and then you know trying to convince guys to come play for Canada? What, what do you what do you point your finger to it as? I, I think that it certainly helps. I think the game has become far more professional in the last ten years uh, with with Vancouver and Toronto and Montreal and their academy systems being being world-class, the facilities, and forcing the levels beneath them to become more professional as well. But it's also luck. I mean, listen, you know, look at any, any country with a golden generation. It is also luck, you know, guys getting um, the opportunities at, at, at the right time, um, be it Portugal, be it Germany, be it England, be it Canada. You know, you need a bit of luck there as well. But you mentioned before, you made a great point with John Herbman, how important he's been for the game in this country. And yeah, I was skeptical a little bit when he left the, the women's game and joined the men's game. I always thought he's a very, very good coach and we heard great things about his motivational skills. But having you know seen it a little bit closer now and spoken to people who, who've been brought under him, they just come across and, and say, man, this guy's pretty special. You, you can't leave the room without a smile on your face. He's that inspiring, but he's also tough. And, and people see that smiling exterior and, and the great interviews and the great sound bites. But don't forget, this guy's tough, and he's not going to take you know no for an answer from either the establishment or from his players. So he's almost the perfect max, I think, for an international manager. And, and we're very fortunate that we have him. You know, had him for the women's game, and he implemented systems there with the, uh, the elite programs. Now he's doing the same with the men's game, and we're just seeing the rewards at the moment. James Sharman, Footy Prime Podcast. When you you mentioned the Herdman effect. It isn't an easy job, is it, being a, a manager for Canada in convincing guys to leave Europe to come over and play? It, it's not like those games when you get those off breaks are, are, are real short. It's a haul for them. But identity and bringing in a culture of, of responsibility and, as you said, toughness, I'm assuming that those hallmarks of what Herdman has done, you know, in his his coaching career, are the things that are keeping this group together, keeping them motivated, and keeping them wanting to to put the Maple Leaf on. Because listen, James, you talk to I've talked to Paul Dolan, I've talked to Dave Norman, I've talked to some ex guys who used to play for Canada, and there was a real pride in putting the Maple Leaf on. And I think we lost that a little bit. But John, whether mm-hmm. he's wrapping himself in the Maple Leaf, I, I I would assume that that's his strength, and that's why this group is so tight and together. 
Yeah, I mean, he's, he's like me. I understand that. You know, we're, we're Brits, but we've been here for a long time now, and we feel we are Canadian now. You know, and, and he's been here for I don't know how many years it is now. You know, it's over a decade, and he, you know, you won't find more Canadian uh, people than, than John Herman. And I think you mentioned it there, identity, and that's what he's got. His group, be it the women's side or the men's side, believing in who they are. They have, you know, this is a Canadian team, Craig. You know, walking out with, with a swagger onto the soccer pitch, and for a long time that just was not the case. And guys wanting to play for their country. Steven Estacchio, for example, is, is a player who was just superb at the Gold Cup. It's going to be a big part of this team moving forward. He was in the Portuguese system. The Portuguese system right, had a lot of potential there. John Hoagland got his hands on him in 2018 and convinced him. I don't know how, but convinced him to come to Canada. And now he's a key member and will be a massive part of this, this program moving forward. So he's got that ability to convince players to play for Canada and to also you know, put the country maybe ahead of the club at times while also respecting the club. John Davis is a prime example. Maybe Canada's best player right now. With respect to Fonzie, John Davis might be the best player. He allowed John Davis to say, to say you know, I'm, I'm staying in Europe with my club team, Lille, at the moment. You know, I'm going to nurse an injury. But he knows that when the games are important in the octagon in, in a few weeks' time, he'll be able to call on John Davis because he's got that respect. So I think he's got the players' respect and also the club's overseas to their managers he's got their respect as well and that's so so important compared to previous editions of, of this program yeah just uh incredible and and as you mentioned the swagger <laughs> that that isn't we see it in hockey we see it in other sport basketball yeah. now you look at the young great canadian basketball players and, and i guess you know you you whether it's a vince carter or steve nash effect for those basketball players whether it's Sidney crosby uh wayne gretzky for the hockey we do have those soccer stars now, don't we, globally, those players who are making an impact that are playing on the biggest of teams, and that should even drive it further forward outside of the group that we're seeing playing right now. Yeah, of course. These are now becoming brands, right? Not just footballers. Now, obviously, their football is number one, and Herbert will make sure they know that their football is number one, but these are brands, and I think it's so important for the CSA, the Canadian Soccer Association, to do what they can to get these kids' faces absolutely everywhere. You know, I want to walk into a, into a Foot Locker, for example, and see Alfonso Davis's face everywhere, selling me shirts and selling me boots. I want to see that. Let's get these guys um, known in this marketplace in Canada where, you know, we, I don't think we've, we've ever had that before, have we? I don't think soccer-wise. I mean, who are the biggest names prior to this, this current group? The biggest names are T. Hutchinson, an absolute legend of the game. You know, maybe the best player we've ever had. No one knows who he is, apart from the football crowd. Craig Forrest, my, my good mate, your good mate, you know, um, yeah. played at the top level for, for many years, many years, and the football crowd know Craig. I'm not sure outside of the football crowd they know him, you know, and that's inexcusable. So I want to see Fonzie and John David and Kyle Larin and these guys everywhere. I don't know how they do it. I know money's an issue, but they've got to find a way. Be creative. Get them out there because we've got to support these kids. Totally agree with you. James, fantastic stuff. And you know who else knows uh, Stacks is Jerry Dobson, who, yes, he took those games from me. I can't, I can't <laughs> he, uh, still he did, believe man. it. <laughs> uh, great stuff uh, really appreciate your time James enjoy the uh, final and uh, you know fingers crossed that uh, Christine Sinclair and company can come through for Canada but just making it this far and getting a, a different color than the, the last couple that they've had is, is a huge uh, step forward and the game's growing and, and it's fantastic for you and I who, who support it and love it as well it really is, you know. I mean, listen, we're not there yet. I haven't won it just yet. But regardless, what we're experiencing right now, Greg, seeing good Canadian teams competing at the top level, 
you know, it's almost validation, right, for our, for all our hard work. You know, you can thank us, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, bud, take care. Uh, enjoy the uh, final and the rest of the summer, and uh, we'll no doubt do this sometime again down the road. I look forward to it. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Jim Sharman from the Footy Prime podcast joining us here on Bick and the Boss on Sportsnet uh, 650. And, yeah, it is the golden age of soccer. And I know for the casual fan who, you know, follows the NHL or the NBA or Major League Baseball, uh, Canada is is coming on in the men's game. The women's game, they've always been there. They've been super strong and and have have had the golden uh, age player in Christine Sinclair to lead the way. But that's just paved uh, the path for younger players to come along and follow in her footsteps, aspire to be here. And, and I really do think when it comes to sport, no matter what it is, if you have those role models and, and you see their faces and, and, you know, see me, be me, that mentality, and it, it's fantastic for the women's game. It, it's outstanding that, you know, Canada is going to be playing for a gold medal in soccer, beating the United States, uh, but the the men's side is also improving as well. So big, big stuff here for our nation, our country, when it comes to soccer. And, you know, I, I really do believe that, you know, the the like James said there, the men's team has a huge opportunity ahead of it uh, to qualify for the World Cup on its own. And that would just validate the fact that when Canada hosts games, and, you know, fingers crossed, Vancouver might be able to get into the mix on that, that they can go back to back to the World Cup. Because listen, 1986 is a long time ago. And I, you know, remember watching those games on television. I I saw England play at Swan Guard uh, against Canada in the preamble and lead up to that. But it has been far too long since our country has uh, competed on the men's side at the highest of levels. They have the group to do it. It's now just, I guess, up to John Herdman to put the plan in place and, and have them follow. And, you know, it takes a lot of luck. It, it takes, uh, you know, you got to have guys healthy. But at least they have the talent. And to what James said, now Canada has the depth to compete with the United States and Mexico on the men's side. So uh, really interesting, fascinating times for the sport in Canada and uh, look forward to what lies ahead for the uh, women's national team as they go up against Sweden in that gold medal in uh, Tokyo. Uh, Best of luck to Christine Sinclair and company as they uh, chase uh, a medal that they probably should have picked up in uh, England, but uh, at the London Games, in my opinion, were robbed, but this could be uh, the the justice or the revenge that they so desperately need. Uh, a little bit more to come here on Bick and the Boss as we talk some football of the North American variety. Stacy Roast of uh, 710 ESPN Seattle. She's at Seahawks training camp. She'll give us an update and the latest on what's going on down with the Seahawks. So all you 12s, please uh, don't go anywhere. You are listening to Bick and the Boss on the home of the Canucks. Sportsnet 650. You're listening to Bick and the Boss on Sportsnet 650. Last segment of the show here on Bick and the Boss with uh, Craig McEwen riding uh, solo this week here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Lots of NFL news and notes. Uh, Frank Reich asked today about his football team and the possible uh, trade. Uh, may, maybe Nick Foles might be on his way from Chicago to Indy, but uh, Reich was pretty clear when he said uh, he wanted to state that this is uh, Carson Wentz's team. 
Uh, he's our quarterback. We're excited to have, have him. He knows that his team is his. Uh, we brought him here for that one reason. He's going to come in here and lead this football team. You know, maybe with the uh, surgery that Wentz has had on his foot, that it's only going to be the five weeks, not the 12 weeks that had been uh, talked about before. But interesting uh, things for the Colts. And of course, the Colts will be in, uh, will play the Seahawks early days and an injury to Wentz and on the O-line um, could impact the way that game goes against Seattle. Uh, Seattle been looking good from all reports out of camp. John Clayton was on with us and talked about how the team is adapting. Uh, training camp, it's always the longest time of year. And I, I know they get to the games finally this week uh, with uh, Pittsburgh and Dallas uh, in Canton tomorrow, 5 o'clock. Uh, it'll be nice to see some football back, but still way early days when it comes to lineup decisions, changing what your team looks like, putting things in place. And, you know, Seattle's had a lot of work to do with a new offensive coordinator uh, working in the Emerald City. It's one of those things where the the, the Seahawks, you know, last year they, they let Russ cook. And uh, John Clayton was the one who said, hey, let's, let's stop talking about letting Russ cook. But in all reality, Russell Wilson had talked about how he wasn't necessarily happy in Seattle, uh, at least – the rumors were that, and the Seahawks have gone about to try to address that. And, and it's interesting to me, I thought there would be a bigger overhaul on the offensive line, but they make a trade with the Raiders, uh, and that that's about it. And Pete Carroll's hoping that because of last year uh, with the, the pandemic and, and uh, the way the season was built and put together and, and you didn't have all the the options of getting guys as a group working out all that sort of stuff that this year will be different for that O-line with a little bit more cohesion and, and quite frankly, um, with a little bit of a new direction uh, with that new offensive coordinator, Shane Waldron, who, you know, comes from the Rams, uh, will rely heavily on the uh, tight ends, it appears. Uh, that's going to be an area where the Seahawks will look to exploit things. But when you have a, uh, a locket and a Metcalf as well as weapons and uh, Chris Carson in the backfield. And, and it looks like uh, Richard Penny's doing a little bit better. Uh, it would appear that the sky is the limit for this football team. Uh, we now head down to Seattle to training camp. Stacy Rose from 710 ESPN joining us. And, and Stacy, first of all, thank you for doing this. And, and secondly, how is camp uh, going today uh, down there for the Seahawks? Uh, it's going good so far. You have your second day of padded practices right now. Uh, we're just watching 11 on 11. So pretty smooth so far. I mean, best news if you're a Seahawks fan, right, is that there's been no injuries from camp. Like, there's been no injuries and no bad news out of camp so far. Yeah, and that's always a key, isn't it? Just getting through the, the, the dog days of camp, putting systems in place, but not getting anyone dinged up is is massive. So, uh reading things looking at it and for the 12s up here in Canada has there been any surprises so far for you uh I know still early but at at camp outside of the non-injury factor uh any surprises you know I would 
say just the level that they're uh, working to incorporate Colby Parkinson, um, we knew that this team would be incorporating tight ends more because they brought over Shane Waldron as their new offensive coordinator. He's a rookie play caller but has experience with Sean McVay's offense in L.A., as you guys know, as their passing game coordinator. And we know that the L.A. Rams, especially in their best years, made strong use of all of their personnel, including really nice tight end packages. So when they added Gerald Everett, who uh, Shane Waldron had been his tight ends coach and then obviously later passing game coordinator, we were all expecting like Everett's tight end one. Done. It's <laughs> like the seal, seal the deal. There we go. And out here at camp so far, what you've seen is a concentrated effort to work in several of the tight ends, including second-year pro Colby Parkinson, who fans didn't really see a lot of last year because he missed some time with a foot injury. And they're still working on the blocking. Pete Carroll said the blocking needs some work, so that's an advantage that guys like Will Disley are going to have over him, who's a much better blocker, potentially the best blocker in that tight end group. But Colby Parkinson is six foot seven. I mean, there are few guys on this team that when they're in the huddle make DK Metcalf look small. And this is one of those guys. <laughs> so he's been a star in red zone drills. Uh, he had three touchdowns the other day, two in the red zone. And uh, in 11 on 11, they're, they're working him in too. And it hasn't been perfect, right? Like he's had some drops. And uh, at times you can tell that he's trying to figure out where to go. But that's to be expected with a brand new offense anyway. So this is the time you work out those kinks. It's okay if it's not perfect, but he's looked really good so far. Yeah. And, and, and I ask now about that brand new offense, how long do you get a sense? And, and in talking to some of the players, will it take to, to get up and running? Like, listen, you can put your systems in place, your plays and all that sort of stuff, but bottom line, you know, until you start playing some games and, and you're not going right. to see all the best players through training, how long will it actually take them to kind of absorb it, uh, know it, and, and, and get running on, on a really high level? I think you're going to take the first couple weeks of the season, which is going to be their big challenge, right? Because you cannot afford to get off to a slow start, especially in the NFC West. Uh, they start out with a game against Indianapolis, which Indy still has Jonathan Taylor, a great running back, but obviously in a pretty tough quarterback situation right now um but they're also going to face i mean three great running backs in weeks one through three tennessee titans who could take their division in week two they've got a tough slate of games early before they hit the nfc west and i would imagine it takes several of those weeks in those games to smooth things out so i would not be surprised if you know in week one and week two thankfully tennessee doesn't have a great defense but uh you know once you start hitting san francisco in, in week four or five i think you're probably going to see some stumbling. You're probably going to see them ironing things out. The most important thing they need to do with this offense, and this team knows it, is adapt. It's the one thing they didn't do last year. This is the NFL. Every team has superstars, and the worst defense is still full of phenomenal players. Teams will figure you out. The best offenses manage to adapt. Either they've got players you just can't bring down, right? Kansas City has Patrick Mahomes and Tyreek Hill, and no one can beat him in a foot race, but – other offenses like Seattle, they're just going to have to adapt and they're going to have to confuse people. That's what Sean McVay was so great at doing. So that will be the challenge for them. It's, it's not a loss. It's not a reason to panic if the offense doesn't look great at first. Start panicking and start worrying if they never adjust and adapt. Stacy Rose from 710 ESPN. Seattle joining us here on Bick and the Boss. Um, 
And I guess the one thing that uh, is the security blanket or comfort for all fans is the fact that the guy who will be adapting will be Russell Wilson. And as long as you have Russ in there, that, that that's that's an pretty important piece. How impressed has he been with how things look, the the new setup, and and I guess how much input has he been able to uh, have with the with what Shane's doing with the offense? You know, I'm going to assume he's got a fair amount of input. We obviously don't know. Um, my co-host is his private quarterback coach in the off season and is really high on Shane Waldron and the idea that Russell should be able to maybe get in there and advocate a little more and maybe can do that with Waldron. And so I just kind of take my cues. I kind of take my cues from Jake in that situation. But as far as just watching it, I mean, Russell's always been this person. So it's hard to tell if this is different. Sorry if it's loud here. Literally a practice right now. Um, yeah. You can, you can still see him going up to guys. He's, He's talking to guys after playing. He's making sure everything gets figured out. So I don't know if that's him being involved more because he's always done that. But I do think it's fair to expect that part of those big off-season discussions he and Pete Carroll had probably involved him advocating for a little more say in the offense. And listen, Pete Carroll's offense loves to run the football. We all know he talks about balance all the time and how important that is. Uh, Chris Carson, what I've read, seems pretty excited about things. And and maybe just give us an update on Rashad Penny and and how he's looking as he tries to come back from injury. Yeah, so this is actually some good news for Seahawks fans that have been hoping Seattle can get the most out of a first-round pick and haven't been able to yet with with, uh, Rashad Penny. Rashad Penny's looked good in practice so far he had a really nice day the other day he had uh, a pair of touchdowns he had a really physical run which is the first thing that was good to see I mean I was standing next to another reporter and when you're like camp you just kind of chat with each other as you're watching and it was one of those plays where we kind of stopped and you heard someone another reporter go oh and so I mean that's good (laughs) that's like that's a great reaction to what Rashad Penny did on that play it was very physical down the sidelines um, there are limitations to how bruising that running can be in camp. You can't have the same contact rules, but uh, he looked good. And then he had a separate receiving touchdown, and he's had pretty good hands. He was a prolific offensive weapon at San Diego State. He just hasn't been able to stay on the field, and they haven't tapped into it yet. A couple more minutes here at Seahawks camp down in Seattle. Stacy, um, defensively, uh, linebackers know uh, K.J. Wright, at least for now. Um, how has that looked? Bobby Wagner's been absent a little bit, and and uh, Daryl Taylor. There, there seems to be a little bit of hype around him and him coming in and, and having an impact this year. Where's he at, and and where does that linebacking core sit? So I'll start with the linebackers. Bobby Wagner is back today, and literally watching him right now. Uh, you're starting Mike back, and uh, you have uh, Jordan Brooks at will. And when Bobby was out for two days, they kept Jordan Brooks at will. So. I think we had all expected that Jordan Brooks might be Bobby's eventual successor, but for right now, they went with Cody Barton at Mike while he was out. But uh, it is the full kind of starting crew back at uh, most of the defense. And at Sam, you're going to have Daryl Taylor potentially competing with Barton and maybe uh, Alden Smith, who looks pretty solid. I've only seen Smith um, in some limited one-on-ones and, Sorry, he's not limited, but our our view of what they've been doing is, you know, a lot of rotation going on, so you don't get to see someone for two hours. Um, but he's he's looked good. He's looked physical. Uh, this is going to be a a stupid kind of analogy, but we had someone text into our show with a joke question saying, "Hey, in your line of sight, which guy has the best calves?" 
interrupted with all these minutes. Like, if you're out here looking at the group of defensive ends, Carlos Dunlap looks the most impressive. And Alden Smith is one of those guys, too, where you look at him and you think, okay, yes, he is in shape for training camp in a way that he may not have been a couple months ago when they were doing OTAs. Stacy, really appreciate you stopping by and spending some time. I know it's been a long day. You had your show, and now you're at watching practice. But uh, thanks so much for this, and, and you give a lot of Seahawks fans up here hope that, uh, yes, it's going to be new. Yes, there might be some stumbles out of the gate with the offense, but as long as the defense can hang in there and Russ is under center, I think everything looks good for the Seahawks. It's awesome. And I will say, Gerald Everett literally just got a touchdown. So reason to be excited. <laughs> nice. Very good. Thanks very much yeah, for doing thanks, this. Guys. Thank you. Uh, Stacy Roust from 710 ESPN Seattle uh, joining us here from Seahawks camp and, and really uh, some interesting things there about how they want to use the tight ends and Gerald Everett. She just mentioned catching a touchdown pass. Uh, that to me, the, the balance or looking at what Seattle does is the most important thing because last year, you know, when Russ was cooking, uh, teams found a way to shut him down and slow him down. And they had some injuries at running back. They, 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 you know, were shut down badly in that playoff game against the Rams. And, and one of the things is with Pete Carroll, you know, you want to be a physical football team. And in order to be that, you need to run the football. It's not just being physical on defense. So I would suspect that the Seahawks are going to run the football uh, quite a bit this year. And obviously it looks like they are going to, uh, throw to the tight ends a bit as they continue to grow and get through camp here. Um, started the show with a little bit of Canucks talk. Uh, Thatcher Demko has proposed uh, to his soon-to-be wife. She said yes, which is great, and uh, also mentioned that Murph ditched us yesterday. Said he couldn't do it, but uh, Dan Murphy was on uh, the Rintoul and Sermon show with uh, Karen Sermon and Jamie Dodd, and... Uh, Murph was asked a, a number of things about the Canucks, uh, off-season changes, new head boss, and also uh, what's it going to be like for the Canucks playing in his hometown of Abbotsford. I think it's helped a lot. I mean, I think you see guys like Nick Batan uh, signing here where you, you can almost make certain that um, he probably wouldn't have signed uh, if the farm club was still in Utica. Um, players like that that are from the lower mainland. Um, so I think it's going to help tremendously uh, that it's a line that you have, uh, you know, a bunch of staff close by. Um, so I, I think it's a big help. I think it's going to be a, a big advantage for this team. I think you can attract better talent. You can attract more fans. Uh, you're better aligned because, you know, you know Ryan Johnson is an, an hour away. So, uh, you know, certainly I think at first blush, uh, this is a big win for the Canucks to, to move uh, from Utica to Abbotsford, and not that Utica was a bad spot. I mean, in terms of fans and crowds, it was a, a great AHL stop, but logistically, it just wasn't great for Vancouver. The other bit of news uh, from the Canucks this week, Murph, comes on the business side of things with the the announcement that Michael Doyle is going to be the new president of business mm -hmm. operations. Now, usually, I mean, I'll admit, I don't pay a lot of attention to what's going on on the business side of the organization. It, it's pretty separate, obviously, from the hockey operations side, but we do get these texts and these questions from listeners about saying, you know, look, there's been a lot of turnover on that side of things. Does that show that, you know, it's not a great place to work, that it's difficult to work for the Aquilini family? Is there, in your view, is there any validity to those concerns about the amount of turnover sometimes that we do see within the Canucks organization, even on the business side? 
Yeah, well, I mean, DeBonis was there forever, right? 13, 14, 15 years. I think that one's probably, you know, guys are going to move on uh, when they've had that much time and, and worked under a few different regimes as well, right? I mean, he was there with uh, Berkey. He was there with Nonus. Uh, he was there with Gillis, right? So I think that was one. I Like, I still nobody really knows why Stipek left. It kind of it went with went quickly and with really no explanation. So I'm not sure what happened there. I mean, certainly anybody that's good at business, it, it could be tough to work for them. I, I, You know, the Aquilinis uh, are probably tough bosses. You don't get to where you are without that. Doyle has been, um, you know, a loyal so- soldier for them forever. Um, he's done a great job, I believe, with their top table group. And I think his desire was always to get back uh, into uh, the business side and the hockey business side. And perhaps that's why you're seeing this move here now. Um so, you know, to answer your question, I'm sure some guys find the Aquilini's tough to work for. But I wouldn't put too much weight into the into the um, uh, DeBonis one, and I can't tell you any information about the Stipec one. I mean, certainly every interaction I had with him, he didn't. He had some road trips with us, was great. Uh, but uh, other than that, I don't know the reason why he left because nobody really said anything about it. We're in conversation with Dan Murphy of Sportsnet for just a couple more minutes here, Dan. Dan, when you look at what the Canucks have done this offseason, you look at what the Flames, the Oilers, I guess the Jets, because we'll keep them in the Western Conference. Do you think the Canucks, obviously with all the moves, like the 17 free agent signings, a couple of buyouts, do you think they were the ones that improved their team the most? Well, I think Vancouver's forward group is definitely much better. Um, You know, I think you could make an argument that they – the forward group might be somewhere in the top 10 in the league, I think, uh, if everyone's healthy. Um, I don't know what to make about the defense at this point. I mean, both Edmonton and Vancouver's defense are, you know, kind of, you know, at this point, they don't look fantastic on paper. Uh, I mean, Vancouver's in huge trouble if OEL doesn't have the kind of season they believe he can have. Uh, let's be honest here. He's going to play a ton of minutes for Travis Green. He's going to be the top-minute guy. There's no question. Um, and... You know what? If we're being honest, they're in a ton of trouble if Quinn Hughes doesn't have a bit of a bounce back season, right? I mean, he struggled last year. Now it was a, a difficult season for everyone. Uh, he got off to a terrible start, but um, I, he didn't certainly didn't take a step forward in his progression, and he needs to do that this year. Um, the Pullman signing is a bit of a head scratcher in terms of the term of money, but the right hand D market was crazy. Um, and you know, and I, I know that the coach loved Hamannick, and maybe it's a bit of an overpay, but it's just for two years, so. I would say overall, when I look at everything that's been done, I think the only lock for me, if you had to tell me one lock or make the locks in the Pacific, it's, it's Vegas. After that, I would probably still handicap Edmonton uh, next, but like Vancouver, Calgary, Seattle, I mean, even throw LA into the conversation now with the improvements they've made. Um, I think one thing Vancouver has going for it is it still seems to be a weak division. So, if you can beat the teams you're supposed to beat uh, and then take care of a couple of the Alberta teams or win those season series, then they do have a, a chance to make the playoffs. But um, you know, I, I would definitely not say they're a lock, and I wouldn't say that about Calgary as well. Dan Murphy joining Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd and uh, Karen Sermon earlier today on uh, Sportsnet 650. And uh, Greg, Murph doesn't think the Canucks are a lock, but feels they have a great shot at the playoffs if, if they take care of what's in front of them. And, and hey, he said it right there. Uh, the, the back end is the one question mark on this team, but if Quinn Hughes takes a step forward and improves and OEL is all right, you know, it, this group does 
have a legitimate shot at, at the playoffs. And, and that's what Jim Benning has done here. That's why he invested so heavily in the offseason and turning this roster over. Yeah, at some point you have to expect the young players to take that step. And I thought it was going to come last this past season. And, and people said, oh, you know, they, they lose to Foley. They, they lose all these players. And where's the offense going to come from? And my, my way of thinking was, oh, you know, Pedersen's going to have a great year and all these other guys are going to step up. And that didn't really happen. There's too many ifs going into that season. So I, I don't like the fact that there's so many ifs also going into this next season. If Quinn Hughes improves, if this player has a great season, you, you need to be able to afford a few players to have off seasons and still be a playoff team. So it's a little scary, I think, for the Canucks. When you look, like you said, at that decor, there really isn't a lot of room for error for, for some of those guys in terms of you know making this a playoff team. Yeah, and let's not discount the fact of a couple of things. Last year, the pandemic, I, I don't know that it was easy on any NHL player. Right. And especially in the North Division, the way you know cities were shut down, on the road, you couldn't leave your hotel room. And to your point about Pedersen, you know, he gets hurt, he, he doesn't help them in their push. And the Canucks hung around for a while without him. But, you know, the COVID hits and it, it just, it's one of those years, Greg, I look at it and I just, I kind of throw it in the garbage can. And I, I know Canuck fans don't like to hear it because it seems like a wasted opportunity, but they weren't invested last year. It didn't appear mm -hmm. from the financial point of view because they didn't have the money. This year it's changed. So uh, yeah, there's some ifs, but um, there's a lot more promise as well. And, you know, you look at the goaltending tandem, Thatcher yeah. Demko uh, proposing, but Halak coming in seems to be a good idea because he's a, he's an actual backup or someone who's played the position outside of Holtby. So th that has to, you know, bode well and help you because, listen, all teams, you know, have areas where they, they maybe aren't as strong as others. And Murph talked about the four group, how good they are, maybe top 10. I would suggest to you that the goaltending tandem looks really well as, as I tee you up for mm -hmm. one of your favorite conversations. <laughs> Well, going into last season, that wasn't the case, right? The, the the big question mark was the goaltending, if Demko was going to be able to step into a starter's role and what Holpe was going to bring. So we saw how that worked out. Going into this season, you don't have that question mark. So it is a nice feeling knowing going into the season, you have Demko there, you can ride him as many games as you want, and you also have Halak there as sort of a backup plan, a proven NHL goaltender just waiting in the wings. So I think it's a, a, it's a different set of ifs going into this next season. Uh, but I feel like the Canucks, to me, are, are in a much better position, like Murph said, going into the, this upcoming season to be a playoff team. I think the, you know, the the amount of ifs have been quelled a little bit compared to last season. And, of course, like you mentioned, C-Mac, it's not a pandemic anymore. These guys can really get invested and come together as a team in ways that they really couldn't this past season. Yeah, and the schedule changes, and you're going to be getting some teams that aren't as strong as the ones you faced in the North Division uh, this from Rocket and Langley as we quickly wrap things up here on Bick and the Boss. Do you think the new assistant coach, uh, I think his name is Brad, yes, Bradshaw is realizing he has his hands full or is it a great challenge? I would suggest it's a, it's a great challenge and the coaching staff is super pumped with the changeover. And listen, Greg, sometimes you get new people in your locker room, a new identity, and if you get off to a good start, you never know where things can go. Well, I'm a big person that you know, harps on having a really good goalie coach can really help your team. And we've seen the results here in Vancouver with Ian Clark. Same could be said, I'm sure, for defense coaches and offense coaches. It's it's the same thing. You get a you get the right coach into the mix and players can play completely different than what you saw them playing as before. So I, I I've seen the results for the goaltending world and I'm certain that a, a great defensive coach like Bradshaw can do the same thing, hopefully, for this Canucks team. 
Yeah, let's let's hope so. Uh, that's a wrap for uh, this edition of Bick and the Boss. Uh, still ahead, though, lots more to come on the radio station. Uh, the People Show, just around the corner. Uh, ben Nicholson-Smith, Brendan Dunlop, Ian McIntyre, and Brady Henderson uh, will chime in with Seahawks talk. IMAC with the Canucks, Dunlop Olympic coverage, and uh, Nicholson-Smith with some Blue Jays uh, chatter as well. That's... Uh, Ahead on the People Show with uh, Dan and Sat. You're listening to the uh, end of Bick and the Boss on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.